Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro, and welcome to our first episode of 2022. Delighted to be back with you for the new year. And first off, a thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. My guest in this first episode of 2022 of Explore the Space podcast is Dr. Danielle Bellardo. Dr. Bellardo is a cardiologist and an expert on how to effectively educate people around the foods they eat. And we know that when we enter a new year and we talk about things like New Year's resolutions, a very common one is thinking about the foods that we eat and resolving to try to make some changes. It's such a fraught subject and it becomes extremely contentious and controversial. And one of the things that Dr. Bellardo has done really well, I feel like, especially on social media where she has a massive presence, both on Twitter and on Instagram, is creating a forum where people can have these conversations and do so, as she says, having a non-judgmental approach. And talking about that with her was really, really gratifying. We talked about her approach to how we educate, her approach to accessing the literature, and then some really important stuff like snacking, smoothies, fruit salad, critical stuff. This was really, really fun. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Definitely do please subscribe to Explore the Space if you have not yet done so already. We're going to have a big year this year. We're going to have lots of great episodes, all the good stuff that you're used to. Med Lasso is coming back, too. We're going to have more episodes as we wrap up our review of season one and then get ready for season three. It should be coming this year as well. Please do subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Definitely give us that rating and review, and please help spread the word. All of those things really help us out. You can email Mark at ExploreTheSpaceShow.com. You can find me on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at ExploreTheSpaceShow. The whole archive of Explore the Space podcast is at your fingertips, www.ExploreTheSpaceShow.com. Hope you came to this episode hungry. This was a lot of fun talking with Danielle, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. So without further ado, Dr. Danielle Bellardo. Danielle, welcome to Explore the Space. You're the first guest of 2022. Delighted to have you. Oh my goodness, I'm the first guest of 2022. I'm so honored. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. The the there's a lot of reasons for this. You and I talked last year about coming on the show and for a whole variety of reasons that didn't come together, mostly scheduling issues that I think everyone was experiencing, but for me it was one of those things, one of the most common things that people think about at, when there's a calendar turn, however much you value or don't pay attention to sort of the, the turn of the calendar for a new year, people do seem that they want to pay more attention to the activities that they're doing, the relationships they have, the foods that they're eating. And so it seemed only fitting that someone who has great expertise, great wisdom, and manages conversations around nutrition in a way that is very welcoming and very warm would be the right person to approach for this. So thank you. 
Oh, that's that is such a kind compliment. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm I'm just so honored to finally be able to join you. And, and I'm glad that we were able to schedule this during this tsunami warning as well. <laughs> so, that's, so not only is there a pandemic, you and I are both in California and we're both under a tsunami advisory because there was there are big <laughs> waves coming in on the California coast right now. Yeah. So we may hear some I'm further away from the coast than you are. Uh, but we may hear a few sirens. And if we do, I'm going to leave them in because that's just great texture for the show. Yeah. As long as I don't have an uh, immediate evacuation warning because right. I'm right on the beach, yeah. we'll, we'll keep going. <laughs> if, that, if that's the case, obviously, we'll need to end the call. That's fine. <laughs> that's totally fine. So you have created a, a really, for me at least, a, a great and unique space around the foods that we eat, the topic of nutrition, which is oddly in the last decade or so, maybe longer than that, become really, really fraught. Uh, it's very, very tempestuous. It's very opinionated. It gets really aggro, it seems like sometimes. <laughs> is it a space that you enjoy? Let's just start there. Is this a space that you, acknowledging the slings and arrows, is it a space that you enjoy being in? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I'm sure that if, you know, you ask people, I'm, you know, in my 30s, but I'm sure if you ask people that have been in this space for a while, they probably would would argue that it's been a contentious space forever. You know, I think mm -hmm. that uh, food is something that is based in cultural and um, economical, socioeconomical, um, spiritual, religious, personal, you know, uh, various different you know, components that go into what we eat. And it's not just about the nourishment of the food. There's so many other components to it. So it's almost understandable why it becomes kind of an emotional topic. Um, I do enjoy it. And it's because I think it really comes down to the reason why I enjoy nutrition science in general uh, is because I'm a cardiologist and cardiology is the specialty. The reason why I chose cardiology and the reason why I love it so much is because um, lifestyle and prevention accounts for preventing, uh, we can prevent up to 80% or more of cardiovascular disease with changes in nutrition, changes in lifestyle, smoking cessation. And I think in a world where there's so much that we can't control, to be able to empower patients and give them the ability to make changes if they can and team with them to make changes that they can control. You know, you could do everything right in life and be entirely healthy and get cancer, you know, or get hit by a car or have something else happen or get heart disease, even if you're healthy. You know, there's genetic components, et cetera, but lifestyle and nutrition really make a huge impact for cardiovascular disease prevention. So I think that's why I, I really, it speaks to me and I use it with my patients every day. That's a, it's a great way to frame it around the things that we can have control over and the things that we can't, because obviously, as we sit here right now at the beginning of 2022, one could argue there feel like a variety of things that are not in our control, like gigantic volcanoes erupting in the South Pacific, right. tsunami advisories <laughs> and things. Like this. But it, like for me, when I think about it, I, I like to go back to how I was educated around the sort of foundational concepts around nutrition. And I remember as a medical student, it really does acknowledging the importance of our daily nutrition and the importance of all the things that you mentioned, right, with respect to relationships and culture and access and all, all of the social determinants of health and how they're related to food and nutrition. In medical school, it felt like nutrition was handled a lot like dentistry. Like, yes, we have teeth. They're in your mouth and you use them to chew and swallow food. Now we're going to move back on to something else. 
And I felt like nutrition was sort of in that same basket. The most meaningful nutrition education I feel like I ever had was in elementary school learning about the food pyramid, which I subsequently came to learn was driven by the corn lobby. And that's why there's like the foundation of it with all carbohydrates and you know things that were supplemented by the, the corn subsidies in the United States. There's a huge vacuum there. And so I feel uncertainty when I think about nutrition because it is very confusing. It's very, it's conflated with so many other things. How do, how do you think about sort of your foundational training and what you know now? Yeah. So the average USMD student, so um, for anyone listening that I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you already know, but for, I can't speak to osteopathic medical training because I'm not sure the exact number of hours, but I do know the the statistic for the average allopathic MD medical student gets about 16 to 20 hours of nutrition education over four years of medical school, which is pretty, pretty scarce considering how much nutrition, um, you know, impacts our patient's health and both chronic disease and longevity and um, disease prevention and disease remission, et cetera. Um, So uh, I went to Drexel for medical school. I actually really enjoyed our nutrition course, but I will say it was really, uh, it was very analogous to kind of biochem. It was a lot of biochem actually. It was, I think it was implemented in our biochem like unit. And so, um, the, all that I learned about nutrition was um, outside of my formal medical education because um, I did three years of internal medicine residency. We had zero nutrition education during residency. And I did um, three years of cardiology fellowship and we did zero nutrition education and cardiology fellowship. So everything I've learned about nutrition science has been 100% on my own time. Yeah, um, but I yeah. do think that the most important thing about I've had certainly an evolution in my views on nutrition science. And I think that like any area um, on topic of any specialty or anything in general, I think that the biggest hurdle to overcome is actually being able to learn how to criticize and appraise scientific research in general and understanding what different levels of evidence are, understanding what statistical methods are appropriate for what study. Is this study powered appropriately? Is it clinically relevant? And understanding nutrition science is quite different than understanding our medical science. So when I'm looking at a drug trial, statin trials versus placebo for cardiovascular disease, it's quite different when you're looking at nutrition trials because there is no placebo because everyone has to eat. (laughs) Right. And so when we look at nutrition evidence, we're actually looking at various levels of evidence. You're looking at randomized controlled trials that are, you know, uh, controlled feeding trials where you're looking at um, hard endpoints. Um, We're looking at shorter, more controlled uh, metabolic ward studies. But then you're also looking at things like prospective cohort studies and epidemiology. And so it's truly being able to look at all the levels of evidence and synthesize them together and understand the dietary patterns. I am still learning every day. um, And I... I feel fortunate and honored that I'm friends with some of the top nutrition scientists in the world who've really been able to help me continue to learn and explore. It's, it's so interesting to hear you frame it in that way, because the things that for me, and again, this is, I, I'll speak to my own sort of journey around the foods that I enjoy and the way I like to think about food and and my wife and I and our friends, it it, it wasn't hard science that you're just describing. It was actually two books that I read after residency. One of them was The Omnivore's Dilemma, and one of them was Fast Food Nation. And those books helped me to make really big changes in the foods that I was eating for a wide variety of reasons, some of them based on good data around, you know, relationships with food and, and chronic disease and, and inflammation. And some of them were around the societal impacts of the foods, that, the food choices that we make, um, and then the things that just taste really good. It, but I, I share all that because in your work, 
Which are the levers that you find are the most impactful when you're talking with either someone in the office who's a patient in your practice, or you're at the dinner table with friends, or your cousin, your long lost cousin pings you on Instagram and says, I have a question. What are the the most common levers you pull that help people to move their behaviors in a way that doesn't make them, which you do well, not feeling judgmental, not feeling accusatory, not feeling, making them feel guilty. What are those levers to pull to help people do that? Because it's got to be very heterogeneous. Yes. And well, this is where it's complex. Well, just before going into like what I actually do with patients, I will say starting back with, with you mentioning like diet books. So actually, so the more I've learned about nutrition science, I will say the more I actually hate um, diet books. Um, the yeah. majority of diet books um, are trash. And this is the problem is that unlike cardiovascular disease or or hemonc or internal medicine, everyone ordains themselves as a nutrition expert. Right. And for the nutrition scientists who I'm friends with who are brilliant and dedicated their lives to this, I mean, that's quite frustrating, right? Nutrition science is a complicated science. Diet books are more often than not absolutely terrible. And they are not synthesizing the multiple levels of evidence. So I actually don't recommend a single dietary book. Yeah, I recommend yeah. guidelines. Our ACC, AHA nutrition guidelines are hands down the most accurate nutrition recommendation ever. And guess what? They're exactly similar to the American Cancer Society nutrition recommendations. And that's because all levels of evidence point to the same thing, which is a plant predominant diet doesn't have to be plant exclusive, but absolutely can be. I'm I'm vegan, but um, a plant predominant diet fills with lots of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds. And if you eat animal products, you know, things like fatty fish. This is in all of our guidelines. This is in the European Society of Guidelines, uh, you know, right. Society of Cardiology everywhere. So there's too many diet books out there that are, and the problem is with nutrition science is that it um, it's wrought with pseudoscience. That's the issue. Totally. That, the problem with pseudoscience is that it sounds like science, okay? So the, so people can read some of these books that are incredibly inaccurate, that are that are that that can convince you of anything, that carbohydrates are terrible for you, that an apple will give you diabetes, that, <laughs> and, and, and the truth is, is that they make it sound sciencey and they can, of course, cherry pick studies when in reality, it goes against expert scientific consensus and all of the guidelines that recommend the opposite. And that's why we have dangerous trends like the carnivore diet, which mm -hmm. completely excludes some of the healthiest foods on the planet, which is fruits and vegetables. It's just a full 100% meat only diet. Um, that's why we have concerns, especially with um, you know patients that follow diets like that, diet fads like that, where people are publishing books left and right. So you know they're at a higher risk for cardiovascular disease, colon cancer, et cetera. So, to me, the biggest issue is that um, I think and I, I cannot expect every patient to go out and be able to synthesize and understand evidence appraisal and be able to understand what's a good versus bad study or what's an adequately powered study. So one thing I just tell the average person, including physicians, because not a lot of physicians can always evaluate scientific evidence appropriately either. That's why I tell everyone that you can at least I can speak as a cardiologist, the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association and the American Society of Preventive Cardiology, where I'm the chair of the nutrition committee. Um, I think that we have a clinical practice statement coming out soon on nutrition, which I'm the lead author. I think that our ACC guidelines, these, these really, we take lots of care into formulating recommendations that are easy for patients to understand, but that are truly evidence-based. So yeah. how do you translate that into real practice? Well, for as complex as nutrition science is, and for as many, as much as I feel like I've had such a whirlwind in my education on it, the actual ins and outs of what to eat and what's healthy is quite simple. 
and it actually hasn't changed much. So in general, I try to keep it simple with my patients and having a non-judgmental approach is hands down the most important thing because you know, progress over perfection always. If I have a patient, uh, for some patients, the biggest change to their health will not be going vegan. It will not be giving up meat. It will not be giving up, you know, uh, dairy. Their biggest change may be switching from Coke to Diet Coke. Mm-hmm. And that alone could drop their hemoglobin A1C three points, three percentage points. So right. just meeting your patient where they're at and taking steps that are that, that work for them. So the first thing I recommend with patients on a daily basis, first, figuring out, and, and I always tell anyone, I know if you're an internist, you're busy and you're a primary care doctor, you're busy, you have, you know, you have to, uh, you have to address so many things in one setting. And so I always remind the healthcare providers or whether you're a physician's assistant or a nurse practitioner who are such an important part of the healthcare team, I always remind everyone, you don't, Rome wasn't built in a day. You don't need to accomplish switching your patient's diet in one, you know, setting. But I think the first most important thing is discussing with your patient what their thoughts on a healthy diet are and trying to figure out what your patient even knows about nutrition. That is so important because you may assume that they already know this. You may assume, and just taking a basic dietary dietary inventory, even a 24-hour, if you have a visit with a patient where you have time, doing a 24-hour dietary recall can be helpful just to get your patient to say back what they're eating. And you could quickly even say, hey, have you thought about switching to diet soda or water or um, you know, uh, switching out some of your sugary drinks like a Frappuccino or something? like that, taking kind of account of how much alcohol intake, those simple changes at first can make an enormous difference. And then once you establish a relationship where your patient's comfortable talking to you about nutrition, then you can get more into the nitty gritty about getting more uh, diet changes in like fruits, vegetables, and all of that. When you said Frappuccino, I smiled because that word didn't exist until Starbucks invented it. And yeah. now it's just part of the nomenclature. And it's this really powerful mix of caffeine and fat and a lot of sugar and a lot of yeah. high corn syrup. And it's this this normal drink that we all sort of conceptualize. One of the things, this is one of the, I have a variety of questions I'm very excited to ask you. This is the, one of them. As you and I move through sort of the rest of our lives, there's going to be a swirl of societal changes that, you know, those are, these are all normal and, and they, are, they all impact our daily lives as we've come to see. One of the big ones is, is already and will continue to be the impact of climate change. And climate change is going to have a variety of impacts on every aspect of human life and human behavior. It already does. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Do you, when you think about the future of the foods that we eat, the things that are readily available, the things that remain high quality, good nutrition, but will be sustainable and will be able to be climate change resilient, do you think that's going to drive nutrition patterns at a population level? I think that that's what we are certainly trying to do. Um, For anyone interested on this topic, one of the most phenomenal, phenomenal works that you can really dig in and learn a lot about this, the Eat Lancet Commission is a scientific commission based, um, there are environmental scientists, experts, nutrition scientists, experts like like Walter Willett at Harvard, who is an absolute legend. They're some of the most brilliant um, uh, um, policy leaders They've all combined to discuss this issue of both planetary and human health. And the truth is, is if you are someone who has children or if you are caring towards the future, your children's children will not have a planet to live on if we continue the way we are going. That is just a fact. And people who deny climate change, unfortunately, are, you know, are 
not contributing to the, the positive future that we're all hoping for. The, the thing that we're lucky about is the same foods that um, will improve uh, human health, so eating a more plant-predominant diet, are the same foods that help planetary health. Um, additionally, this is further down the pipeline, but cultivated meat is um, going to be a phenomenal uh, change where meat is going, meat has already been cultivated and is um, being grown in um, bioreactors. And uh, even more exciting than that is uh, cultivated meat. There could even be the potential for, you know, genetic editing to make it low saturated fat, low dietary cholesterol, and even improve its health aspects. But you know, there is so much that needs to happen. And even if we just, that's why it doesn't have to be an all or nothing. Even if we just shift towards a more plant predominant diet, that is a huge, huge impact on our, our, our planet and our planetary health and human health. So the Eat Lancet Commission has a wonderful website with tons of resources that gives a really great breadth and overview of this. And it's just top experts in all areas of policy there. They definitely have they definitely have planted a flag in a really important in a really important space. I want to be a little bit more granular now because as I think about what I try to I know how I feel when I when I when we closed out 2021, Kimberly Manning came on and she comes on at the end of every year and we talk about what are the things that we feel like we're doing well and where are the places that we feel like we can improve. What for me, I know I can always do a better job of monitoring what I'm actually eating because I know how my performance changes based on what I'm eating. And it's not necessarily the things that my lizard brain wants, but I know how I feel. I know how I feel in terms of my sleep, in terms of energy during the day, in terms of everything. The the challenges that come up in this in the place of eating those the foods that very much align with the things that you talk about and teach about, you know, mostly plants, avoiding, you know, avoiding refined carbohydrates, things of this nature yeah. as much as possible. Again, acknowledging that we're not trying to be perfect here. Totally. Is is this is where it's this is where it's really important. This is big. Snack time. How do we handle snacks when it's ten thirty and I'm rounding? When it's four o'clock on Saturday and I'm hanging out with 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 the family and it's snack time. Yeah, I love snack time. I love snacks. The best. A little something, a little nosh here and there. Like, t- talk us through snack time. That's a great question, and I do want to. I will definitely get snack time, but I do want to tag on to this that even though I consistently say, you know, the nutrition science evidence tells us to eat a plant predominant diet and all these things. I do want to acknowledge and recognize that, um, which I speak frequently to also on social media a lot, that obesity medicine in general and appetite and all this is incredibly complex. So the idea that we could just speak to all of our patients and tell them to eat less, move more, and just uh, snap a finger is is demeaning because obesity is a complex disease filled with environmental, socioeconomic, but also genetic factors. And now with the release of, uh, you know, um, now where we have GLP-1 receptor agonists and things like semaglutide, like Ozempic and Wegovy, the way we see the neurohormonal and neuropeptides affecting um, weight loss and weight reduction in those tri- in the STEP trials has been so phenomenal that we realize there's more to this than just willpower. So mm-hmm. I just want anyone listening to realize that don't feel bad if you're listening to this being like, I know I should eat more fruits and vegetables and I can't. <laughs> just know that that the science understands this and that I think finding a compassionate physician. So in my practice, I do a lot of um, cardiometabolic health and obesity medicine, and we have two registered dietitians. So we believe in a comprehensive approach. We believe that you should have the support from registered dietitian and you know, for some patients, if they need medication like a GLP-1 to help them, 
change their appetite and things like that, um, I absolutely support it. And this stigma that medications are a failure or that dietary changes should be a pull yourself up by your bootstraps only mechanism to me is doing such a disservice to patients who have either genetic or, you know, a combination of epigenetic, all these different reasons for struggling with obesity, food environment being a big one. Okay. Absolutely. So but for snack time. So, you know, I will say there's one diet book actually. Okay. I, I will plug two diet books. Um, I actually don't even really know these two people personally. I only know them from Twitter, um, but they're both phenomenal. And for anyone listening, I will say they're both pretty evidence-based. Um, one is Hungry Brain by um, Stephen... Oh, I forgot his last name. But if you look up Hungry Brain, his name's Stephen or Stefan something. And the other one is um, Herman Ponzer's recent book called Burn. Um, and they're both really great. They just discuss a lot about um, hunger and uh, what we can do to kind of um, help with appetite and things like that. There's lots of different theories about what makes us full or what makes us crave things. And I, you know, nutrition is so complex because there's, we all have to eat, right? So you have to eat. And so there's emotional components, there's hormonal components, there's access components. There's just so many components that go into it. So with snacking, you know, generally I would say it's it's not an easy answer because a lot of it depends on your overall dietary pattern. Right. The most important thing to think of is no one food in one dose is going to cause disease. So I don't want anyone to, you know, hurt, you know, get upset with themselves or be too hard on themselves if they eat a Snickers bar. But overall, thinking about just the day-to-day, -day, changing your own personal food environment can help. Meaning if the snacks you bring to work are ones that are going to be more healthful choice for you, then that can actually change your dietary pattern, especially if usually at work, if you're not bringing your own snacks and usually only the snacks that are available are things like chips, things like highly processed foods that are um, hyper palatable that you want to eat more of. And that really reward, that reward system, the dopamine in your brain, you know, that can actually, that's, if that's your only food environment at work, well, then of course it's going to be hard to resist that. But if you bring your own food and make your own food environment, that can be different. So some snacks that can be really beneficial are, um, I always like to recommend things that can be high fiber and high protein. So things that can be great that are high, high fiber, um, are, so some of the fruits with the most fiber that I think are great for snacks are berries. So um, raspberries, blackberries, and this can apply if you like a low carb diet, if you like a high carb diet, it doesn't even matter. Raspberries have so much fiber, blackberries, so much fiber, things with fiber and especially fruits and vegetables. So the only place that fiber exists is plants. And fiber and um, fruits and vegetables in general, water-filled foods, these high volume foods make you feel full longer. And so that's because they take up more space in your stomach and fiber helps to, you know, um, it, it just helps to bind bile in your GI tract and lower your cholesterol and do all these great healthy things for digestion. And so if you eat high fiber snacks, you'll feel fuller longer, but sometimes that isn't enough for some people and they don't feel real satiation with that. So sometimes adding something high protein to your snack can also help. I'm plant-based, uh, I'm vegan, but fully 100% plant-based. So for me, that would be something like tofu, um, adding tofu to a snack with beans or um, with uh, you know um, different kinds of cut up vegetables, broccoli. Uh, you could just, I do all the time. I have carrot sticks. I mean, my office is fully just like filled with veggies at all times, fruits. and it's just kind of a bit of a learning curve, but finding snacks that are um, 
the more whole foods you can find, um, sometimes the better, especially because if it's not a hyper palatable processed food, you'll be less likely to overeat it. And, you know, but you have to find something you like. That's the bottom line is that, you know, eating supposed to be pleasurable. So I would say the best advice is to experiment with different recipes, different snacks, and find things you enjoy that are high fiber, that can include some protein and that are healthful. It's fun sort of just listen, listening to you riff on this because it doesn't come off as there's, there's no big carrot when you're telling me to oh, eat yeah. carrot. I'm not you being paid like, by Big Carrot. It's <laughs> <laughs> right. so me, just guys. Sort of... No one from Big Carrot's paying me. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great joke. Did you ever, I don't know if you ever listened to the comedian George Carlin, but he had this great little one-liner. <laughs> he said, and now a message from the National Apple Institute. Fuck <laughs> pears. <laughs> <laughs> I just I heard that years ago when he was like in the middle of his career and I just loved it. So now we can talk about big carrot for a while. But my point in saying all that is that I it's it's just sort of nice where you're not you didn't it's not about buying a fancy protein bar or something like that. And I think that makes it feel like we have more of I guess a playground to to as you say sort of experiment with. Um but what I'm also hearing in, in making that construct is we do have to be deliberate about creating some time and space for it. Uh, it. You can't just grab the package out of the vending machine in the hospital, which look hospitals are constructed to give us our food on the go so we can get back to work. We have to be more deliberate than that. And we have to create some time and space for that. Is that something that you also coach around that it takes that sort of deliberate intent and preparation? Yes, absolutely. And and for anyone, if you don't follow me on Twitter um, yet, uh, I, I will tell you, um, Mark will probably be able to attest to this. I have gotten equal amounts of um, crap from all diatribes, including the plant-based diatribes. You take a beating. I take a oh beating from everyone God. from keto. But some of the most brutal people to have been to, to me personally have been the low, there's a low-fat plant-based tribe that... Um, is very adamant against any sort of kind of processed um, plant foods. They have this okay. whole food nature um, uh, heuristic ideal ideology, and they believe that any amount of fat is bad for you. This is just not scientific. Okay? okay. And so starting with that, the reason why I say that is because even though I'm mentioning that whole foods are great and can be really helpful, I actually am a fan of, I'm trying to make this term happen. Um, I actually put it in my new ASPC, um, our American Society of Preventive Cardiology, um, our clinical practice statement that's going to be coming out. I actually use this term in it, um, but smartly processed foods, meaning uh. meaning we can use technology. There, I do think that there is going to be an advent of more, and I'm a huge proponent of this, of foods that can be smartly processed to be in a dietary pattern that can help with convenience, meaning high fiber, low saturated fat, high polyunsaturated fat. So all things that can actually improve metabolic parameters that can be an option for if you need something for convenience. Um, because I don't want anyone listening to think like that they can only ever bring fresh fruits or vegetables um, because that also leaves out that, you know, we need it to be, there needs to be a mix. There needs to be some times that you're going to be able to just do the, you're going to be able to bring your big carrot to work and do all of that and bring your, <laughs> and bring your tofu. And there's going to be some times that you're going to bring a protein shake. So people will say to me, oh, I can't believe you're okay with protein shakes. Of course I am. If you want to add protein to a smoothie that you make and you have like some great soy or pea protein, that's wonderful. And so, um, so I am an advocate for using food technology, um, in this space to help make more 
smartly processed food. Avoid yeah. these hyper palatable processed foods that we already have in our vending machines, things like chips and these kind of granola bars, things that don't have a lot of nutrient value. That is hard because they taste great and they're not healthful. So I think coaching uh, and you know letting patients and my even my fellow colleagues as physicians to keep that in mind that essentially that yes there there is a learning curve for the process meaning sometimes for some people it's just learning like the snacks are quick like i people will say to me they'll be like wow you're you're plant-based that must be so much work and i say every single food i eat i can you know essentially almost eat without cooking it like i don't eat meat you know so it's really not as complicated or hard as you may think like a lot of uh tofu is you just take it out of the package it's pre-baked and mm -hmm. it, it's incredibly healthy you can literally just take a package of tofu out of uh out of the container and it's pre-baked you slice it up and you can bring it to work with you and it's phenomenal um and so it really is uh just a learning curve and expanding yeah. your your um and, and putting some and time into it. But once people learn it, it's like they can't unlearn it. Everyone kind of thinks, wow, this is so easy. I can't believe I wasn't eating like this before. I do think that I have a lot of compassion for the time issue, whether it's a busy mom who's just, you know, running from job to work to taking care of their kids and busy dads and busy families in general. And then, you know, of course, physicians and physicians in training and nurses. I mean, during this pandemic, I think that we also have to accept that there's going to be some times in our life where nutrition is not going to be the primary focus and that's okay too. Yeah. That's, that's the, the pieces that kind of fit the puzzle together nicely where it's not one thing in, as an absolute that there's allowed to be some blurring and some blending, which then makes it a lot more sustainable for sure. Absolutely. You and I are very fortunate. We live in a state where we get really, really great and high quality fruits and vegetables. And we had a Twitter thread where a variety of people were weighing in. It was a lot of fun. I don't know if you remember it, remember yes. it from about fruit salad. And so you and I are now sitting here in the middle of winter, and I'm going to ask you what you put in your winter fruit salad and then obviously what you put in your summer fruit salad. Wait, I'm so excited about this question. For anyone listening, <laughs> for anyone listening my number one go-to fruit and vegetable tip, whether it's a fruit salad or vegetables or anything. So when I was a resident at Temple, an internal medicine resident at Temple, in my continuity clinic, Temple, for anyone listening that doesn't know, it's in North Philly, um, in one of the lowest socioeconomic areas in Philadelphia. I, I was honored and privileged to take care of some of the most amazing patients I've ever met in my life there in my continuity clinic for three years of internal medicine residency. I was able to get almost about 10% of my patient population there to go mostly plant-based. And so people say, how can you do that in an area where, where, where there's, you know, um, it, there's, it's economically challenging? And here's my number one tip, and this goes into fruit salads too. There is the same nutrient value for frozen fruits and vegetables as there is for fresh. So you can buy very, very, very inexpensive. You can go to BJ's, you can go to Costco, you can buy frozen berries, you can buy frozen, um, every kind of berry you can imagine. You can buy frozen broccoli, you can buy frozen beans, frozen, just frozen spinach, frozen anything. You can save so much money and the nutrient value is preserved. Just make sure it doesn't have like extra added sauces or salts or anything like that. But the nutrient value is preserved and you can save a ton of money. So for my fruit salad, if I'm doing, uh, I love, I'm someone who lives in California, in Southern California, I have access to so many fruits and vegetables. I still use frozen berries a ton. I love it. And I think that it's, um, 
it's just a great hack to save money and make it convenient. Truthfully, too, the reason why it also makes it convenient is because sometimes people say, I'm not going to finish all the berries. And then what they do is they feel bad if they get moldy and then they feel like, well, I'm not going to buy them again because everything went bad. Buy yourself a bunch of frozen berries. So my favorite fruit salad would be, I love to take a bunch of apples, pears, um, and bananas. And then I am a huge berry fanatic, as you've heard. Like I just, I'm a huge fiber fan. So I would do raspberries, blueberries, blackberries, just covered in it. Um, If I'm feeling fancy, I may add pomegranate seeds. (laughs) And then I add chia and flax to everything. Yeah, yeah. The most controversial thing that you said to me in this whole thing mm-hmm. about acknowledging how fraught the nutrition space is, you have actually said something really controversial. You add banana to your fruit salad? My God. Yeah. Yeah. I love banana. Wow. All right. Uh, That's why, bold. It's a bold why, why, move. Why, you don't like banana? I love bananas. I eat a ton of them. I put them in all my smoothies as well. My concern, I make fruit salad in bulk. Like I'll make it work because I like it to kind of have a couple days in the fridge where all the juices mix. Yeah. Yeah, But the banana in that space of time for me degrades. I don't care for it. So yeah, yeah, that was the most yeah. controversial thing for me. Oh, big, big banana is not going to like me. Big mm-hmm. big carrot loves you, and big banana. Well, loves you can you get well. you can you can jump to. I mean, I am people from California will be listening to this saying what this this woman's in, insane that she's saying this. But if you jump on the frozen fruit train, I'll tell yeah. you, then it's like I just I now I like actually even prefer my berries frozen. So anyway, just a tip. It's it's, it's perfectly valid. I like it, my. In the winter, I do a lot of like citrus stuff. We get such great citrus here. Yes. You know, the grapefruit. Yeah. The blood oranges are in right now. So it's blood orange, grapefruit, caracaras, navel, all mixed together. A lot of smoothies in the Shapiro household for sure. That's where we get our spinach. Right. You have a few trees. Don't you have a few trees? Yeah. Oh my gosh. When we we moved, when we were in San Diego, we had a bunch. And then when we moved back to where I live now, we put a bit, we put in a bunch and they're all, ripening because they're all you know four five six what years right now um we've got peach we've got <gasps> santa rosa plum i know we've plum. got emerald we've got two plums we've got santa rosa plum and we've got a plum called an emerald beauty oh. have you ever heard of the emerald beauty plum no it sounds amazing it is it might be the finest piece of fruit on the planet and i'm a peach are you man. gonna ship me some uh it, it depends on we only got like eight last year because the tree's still very young if we get a nice bounty i'll ship you some okay um i'll pick them <laughs> when they're a little bit on the hard side and so they can ripen and tra- and i'll just overnight them to you oh. the emerald beauty plum we actually discovered it at the fa- at the big farmer's market um on the embarcadero in san francisco and my wife and i are like what are we eating this is unbelievable beautiful it really might and it, it, it's consistent growing it in our yard too so then we also have a cherry tree we have cherry uh, meyer tree. lemon yeah we got meyer lemons um, and then we have a hybrid. If you live in Sonoma County, you have to have hybrids because this is where Luther Burbank is from. It's a hybrid um, yellow peach and nectarine. Oh, so like beautiful. half the tree is peach, half the tree is nectarine. Yeah, it's it's the best. Well, I had a um, I had I live on the beach and I have a I had a plant hospice for a while because I tried to uh, I tried to grow. I had an avocado tree and um, yes. a yes. tree and a bunch of herbs. And then I just totally uh, forgot to water it. And um, the sea, the salt, apparently you need two avocado trees because there's like a male or female yeah. situation. Well, I only had one. And um, I was able to get some fruit uh, from it, enough to just brag on social media about the fruit that I grew. <laughs> truthfully, if I'm going to be honest, um, they were, it was like already like, um, I bought like a mature tree. So it was like okay. already. So all I did was end up um, killing them. And so then I had a graveyard <laughs> in my backyard for a while of just dead 
plants. And then finally, I, I put them to rest and I've given up for a little while. So I'll live vicariously through your beautiful garden. Yeah, that's that's perfectly fair. Think of it this way, right? You're you're letting the earth lay fallow. Yes. And so when you're ready to give it another try, things are going to grow beautifully. Maybe, in that that's yard. Why, maybe that's why I gravitate towards frozen berries because I just know I'll never be able to <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. You, so you're, you're not growing your own fruits and vegetables, but you are doing a lot of other things. Let us know. How do we find you and what do you have coming up for us? Um, you guys can find me on Twitter at DBelardoMD. So D and then it's B-E-L-A-R-D-O-M-D. Um, and then I'm on Instagram is my my um, where I'm most active usually. Um, and it's uh, Danielle Bellardo MD. And I'm bringing my podcast back. It's yeah. called <laughs> it's um, it'll be out next month. I'm bringing it back with um, the uh, incredible team at Podcast Nation. And it's called Wellness Fact Verse Fiction. We're going to be debunking a lot of health myths and misconception. Um, of course, I'm going to have to get in the drama of nutrition science. I will, I will be having Kevin Hall, who's one of my good friends, who's the head of nutrition science at the uh, National Institute of Health to do an episode. But we're actually starting with an episode with the one and only Dr. Jennifer Gunter. We're doing a women's health debunk about everything from um, women's health and reproductive age, my age, all the different myths about you know um, birth control, things like that all the way through menopause, which is incredibly important. There's so many myths about menopause. And then I have dermatology episodes of debunking things like clean beauty. Um, With the advent of social media, there's quite a need for evidence-based medicine to kind of make its way through, uh, I think, my generation because there is no shortage of grifters out there trying to sell us quite a lot of products. So that's really what is next for me besides my practice down in Newport Beach. That is incredibly exciting. That show is going to be very, very successful. Well, thank and I, you. I'll have to have you on it. That would be amazing. But I'm just so excited for you because, again, like we, like we talked about at the top, this is a very fraught subject. It's probably going to remain so for the whole arc of our career. For and sure. I just the the thing that you're doing that for me is the most resonant is just the way you handle the 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 drama and the pressure there's it's it's it, you have created a space that feels very welcoming oh thank and you i think that that is right now the most important space like we can have some dialogue you know we can the biggest argument you and I are going to have is does the banana go in the fruit salad or not and that is <laughs> in the grand scheme of thing like that's just kind of a fun one and we can argue about the role of big carrot <laughs> that's a great that's a great place for us to be able to approach these conversations acknowledging that everyone has to eat and it's it's extraordinarily complex. So by creating a space that is welcoming around that, I think you are doing extraordinary work. And this was totally awesome. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored. And it was just so great to chat with you. So thanks again. My thanks once again to Danielle for joining us on this episode of Explore the Space podcast. There is a link in the show notes to her website as well, and you can definitely find her on social media. Her feeds on Instagram and on Twitter really are fabulous. There's a lot to learn there, and they're also just good fun. Thank you also to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. And thanks most of all to you for listening. There's a lot of great podcasts out there. I'm glad that you're making Explore the Space part of your listening experience. I promise we're going to have an amazing 2022. Definitely check out the archive. If you haven't, please do subscribe to Explore the Space wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Hit me on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show, email mark at explorethespaceshow.com. 
Take care of yourselves. We will be back soon with more great content, including the triumphant return of Med Lasso, our Ted Lasso appreciation show. Until then, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.